So when I'm trying to understand truth, investigate truth, I need to have the maturity and humility to know where the truth is applicable and where it is not. This is what the Bible calls wisdom, having the maturity and humility to know where and when this truth is applicable. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith. It is a journey that you have to go on alone. It is not something that somebody else can do for you, despite what all of the self-help books tell you. (laughs) Instead, your journey of faith is yours and yours alone, and you must do the work. But we can come alongside you to encourage you, to uh, challenge you, to entertain you, and most of all, to teach you critical thinking skills so that you know what you believe and why you believe it, Mm -hmm. even in the toughest of times. My name is Jesse Mayer. I will be your host, and we cannot do the Salty Pastor Mm -hmm. podcast without the Salty Pastor himself, (laughs) Dr. (laughs) Douglas Peake. Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad you're here today. Yeah, where we learn how to think for ourselves. We take the revelatory truth of God, and we dig into it to understand what it really means, the gem, the foundational stones on which to build life, and then we apply them to everyday situations. So it's good to have you with us today because we are going to be starting a brand new series, and man, I think it's going to be fire. Fire? Well, it's definitely going to probably light the internet on fire at this point based on my advertising (laughs) attempts. We've already been canceled (laughs) just trying to advertise it. Facebook's already angry at me, but uh, (laughs) we are starting a challenging new series. Yes, challenging. Challenging for you to uh, do research on, I think. You spent a lot of time over your break really trying to make sure that you looked through and and found the things that you wanted to talk about in this and what the Bible says, not just things that you want to cover. And we are talking about My Political Jesus, a brand new series all about what Jesus said about politics and (laughs) how he said it and how not to get pulled into the culture's view on what he said or did not yeah, say. So they like to manipulate his words a yes, lot for their do. own ends, oh, don't they? Yeah. Yes, so yes. tell us all about this new series, Pastor well, We're going to try to find some guidance on this whole political environment that we find ourselves in. Jesus obviously saw the church as his bride. It was a body of believers belonging to him. That was his perspective. Mm-hmm. And so what is interesting is how the church, uh, the body of Christ is formed and sustained. And there's an incredible balance between individual and community. And I, I think we have to understand this first before we can understand how we are to engage with the political environment in which we find ourselves. Okay. And for, first, you know, there is a collective identity, a community identity where you're just a part of a whole, you know, Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his bride that will be presented to him spotless and blameless. There are leadership roles in the church. Paul says, God gave some as apostles, as prophets, as evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and they have a job. It is to build the people up for works of service. So we have a leadership structure in the church. There's elders and they have outlined responsibilities. Then it's really interesting. Paul calls the church a family, right? Right. And so there's a familial essence to it. People are bound together in 
in relationships. And what's usually interesting about a family is that it revolves around the weakest member. Right. Mm -hmm. Have you ever noticed that is that you can have a baby and when the baby comes into the family, what do all the adults do? They, that's their number one focus. It's even the siblings, like as the siblings, I've got a friend and they just had a baby and they have a one and a half year old. And now she's no longer the primary focus and that has its own challenges. challenges, Yeah. Both parents and even the older sister are all focused on on the baby. baby. Yeah. So families tend to do what focus on the weakest members and help the weakest members. Then there's missional, you know, it has a missional flair to it. Paul compares the church to an, an army. You know, he refers to Timothy as his fellow soldier in Christ. Then he talks about how, when you're a soldier, you know, you don't concern yourselves with the affairs of the world, but pleasing your commanding officer. So this is in second Timothy chapter three, verse three. And so missional like things, missional communities, like, like military or the army or whatever, the, it all revolves around the strongest mes- member, right? Right. The, the person who's the strongest is what you revolve around. And so it's the opposite of a family, right? And it's orientation. And then you have the notion that the church is an organization as well. In second Timothy chapter two, verse 15, Paul says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handing the word of truth. So there is a, we're co-laborers in Christ. We're workers in an organization and in an organization, guess what? It revolves around the most efficient the most effective, right? So in military, it's the strongest in a family, it's the weakest. And in an organization, it's the most organized and efficient. That's not confusing at all. <laughs> that's not confusing at all. Is it? It's what so, is my role pastor. That's so that's the collective identity of the church. That's how it, it's a collective. It's a family. It's a mission. It's an organization, right? Right. And, and it's the bride of Christ. Then there's an individual identity about the church as well. And you become a part of it when you individually are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Something changes inside of you. We studied this in the first chapter, first Peter, that we are transformed into the people of God. We are chosen and set apart. It says in Ephesians one that you're adopted. You know, what's interesting is that when you're adopted into a family, you have to be named you it's, it's, it's an adoption is a process for a single individual into a family in the Roman empire. The way you were adopted into the family is during the census, the paterfamilias would write your name in the census book. And that's how you became a part of the family. So it's in your individual name, a singular event for you personally. When this happens, Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, you were given the kiss of the Holy spirit, a deposit that seals you which is really interesting. This is something bestowed on you, the divine presence of God in your life. And it brings a spiritual gift that only you have. It is unique to you as an individual. So even though you're a part of this, this collective identity, the church, you also have a extremely unique individual gift in first Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, how can the foot say I have no need of the hand? And his point is, is that we are all different, right? Right. We all have these really unique qualities. He goes on to say that your purpose in life 
includes discovering what this spiritual gift is and then using it in the service of the community at large. First Peter chapter four, verse 10, he says, each of you should use whatever he has gift. He has been given by the Holy spirit to manifest the grace of God. So we have this collective and individual. So in order to understand what we are called as individuals and as a community to do in this political environment, we must first understand who we are as a church and individually how we are members of this church. So, I mean, today's really all about laying the groundwork yes, of this lots series, of groundwork. right? So much groundwork. We want to make sure we're starting from the right position of our understanding mm-hmm. or, or our, our frame of, of reference, reference. Mm-hmm. in order to accurately grasp what the New Testament is teaching, correct? Yeah, and that's what this podcast is all about. It's for people who say, look, I understand that in order for me to get more out of the New Testament, I need to, to grasp the historical context. I need to understand the philosophical context and more. The bottom line is, is that context is king. Context is everything when you are uh, reading truth and you want to think critically about it. Meaning I just don't want to bring in my own bias or my own feelings or emotions. I need to think critically through the situation in order to understand what it's saying and what it means. And then how do I actually accurately apply that to my life? So when I'm trying to understand truth, investigate truth, I need to have the maturity and humility to know where the truth is applicable and where it is not. This is what the Bible calls wisdom having the maturity and humility to know where and when this truth is applicable. So I need to understand the historical context. When Paul writes uh, the, the word slave to these people or servant, what did he mean? Today, whenever you hear the word slave, emotionally we react because we think of chattel slavery in the 1800s, right? Right. 17 and 1800s and how we had to abolish chattel slavery. But when Paul wrote that letter, chattel slavery did not exist. That wasn't a thing back then. Yeah. So and we're nobody trying to was put enslaved principles of now. Ethnically. They were all slaved due to economics. And so that's a really fascinating thing. Now, there were some people in the Old Testament Uh, that were enslaved due to uh, quell any type of uh, rebellions uh, once a a populace was conquered. But in reality, there's a historical context and that gives meaning to the words used. And I need to get my cultural understanding out of the way and look at it through their cultural understanding. Number two, you have to understand the actual, actual cultural context. When Matthew wrote his account on the life of Jesus, he wrote it to Jewish people. And he was trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. That makes all the difference in reading the gospel according to Matthew. You also have to understand the, the language context text. And that is, it was written in Koine Greek. This language is a dead language. It's not spoken anymore, but the whole notion and ambiance of the, the language is influential. You need to understand that what the mechanics of it, what can it say and what can't it say? And then finally, you need to understand the philosophical context. What, what were the philosophical ways in which people thought and processed information and came to conclusions? The apostle John wrote his letters to refute Gnosticism 
If you don't know what the philosophically what Gnosticism is, then you misunderstand the whole point of first, second, and third John, right? Right. Um, Paul in his Mars Hill address in uh, Acts 17, I think, uh, he's basically articulating the gospel on Mars Hill to the unknown God. Why did he do that? Because they had a philosophical construct that they used and he went into it and spoke to it. So I think your philosophical context is critical in understanding how we understand what was written for us and apply it in the political environment today. So, I mean, there's no question that as a nation, we're politically divided. That yes. You can't look at the news. You can't look at just day-to-day interactions without mm-hmm. seeing that, right? Mm-hmm. From my perspective, it seems like there's a polarization that's made it almost impossible for people to even have a productive conversation or a debate yeah. or even just different ideas at this mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. Um, let alone any argument that's going to try to move forward or create understanding. Yes. Um, do you remember back in the probably, oh, I guess it was in the 60s. It was really I popular in movies. <laughs> uh, well, you're, you're a student of film okay, and storytelling. Then yes, I probably yeah. do And remember. in the 70s, you know, there was lots of movies out there. Rom-coms produced dominantly revolved around a very archetypal story. And that is two people from different backgrounds would fall in love. Like, you know, uh, isn't West Side Story all based on that? Th- yeah, these are it's people- Romeo and Juliet, but yeah. it's in, uh, what is it? 40, Harlem 40s, or New York, Brooklyn 50s, New York. or 50s New York or yeah. something like that. So there's all, and what all the rom-coms back then, they're a little different now, but they were all like, um, uh, I guess the most recent one I can think of is Maiden Man. Manhattan with Jennifer Lopez. Remember she was a maid and she was in a hotel room and she decided, Oh, I'm going to try on this dress. It was a real wealthy, uh, uh, hotel. Somebody really rich was in the hotel room. She tried it on and in walked this congressman or Senator and meets her. And he assumes it's her. They start a relationship and then she's like, no, I'm a single mom and I'm a maid and we can't have a relationship. But it was, that was the essence of all rom-coms back then. And what's interesting today is that that isn't it anymore. Okay. It's a totally different archetypal process now. And, uh, it predominantly, it revolves around how they meet each other, they fall in love, but there's a misunderstanding, uh, about each other, you know, like a falsehood that they've told. And what was interesting about the old ones is that it doesn't exist today because today you have some of the recent surveys are going out is saying like 70% of one political party refuses to even room or socialize with people who are members of the other political party at college. Mm. And that to me is fascinating how much we've changed. We've bifurcated so much. We've become so politically divided where your politics used to be just a small part. Now politics, your political position is your entire identity as a human being. Right. This is very dangerous. It's very dangerous in a society because everything becomes a power play today in politics. Win at all costs in order for me to assert authority over you, force my values on you. So how do we as individual followers of Jesus and then corporately as a church respond to situations like this, the, the way the society is going. Sometimes I see the church is doing things that I think are really good. And I'm like, well, that's awesome. And then sometimes I see things that are really embarrassing me, right? Mm. I see the church 
sometimes saying, well, we just need to get rid of uh, everybody and, you know, this kind of uh, exclusionary attitude, uh, a, a tremendous dislike towards anybody who's ethnically different or maybe an immigrant or any of these types of things and have such a negative view of those people. And I'm going, boy, that's kind of embarrassing. Please, please don't. Please stop. Please stop that. And then I see the church equally embarrassed when they jump on the bandwagon, uh, like with critical race theory or some of these social movements. And, and, uh, when, when I went back East for a trip to Boston to travel with my wife to see the lights and historical things, I saw all these churches, uh, uh, filled with the pride flag, you know, and the whole point is that a church is supposed to say, we all need to, uh, put away our pride. We're not to have any pride in anything earthly. We're supposed to put all of it in Christ. So I was embarrassed that a church churches are, are jumping on these progressive movements that in many ways, uh, are against the very teachings of Jesus Christ. Mm. So I'm embarrassed by that. I'm saying, you know, wow, that's not a good thing. So I think what we have to do is we have to go back and discover the biblical core values in their purity. Once again, you know, what people have to understand is that the revelation of the new Testament inspired by God has 27 books in it, right? Okay. And those 27 books are complete. They are complete. Therefore they are to be read and understood collectively. And what's happening, I think the problem that's presented itself is people take one passage of scripture and then they build a response politically on it without considering all the other passages of scripture that end up causing us to uh, develop some humility and wisdom in the process. So I guess I need some help understanding. Give me some specifics. Help me, help me understand. Give me some examples. Well, I think one area of agreement that everybody who follows Jesus Christ in America today has, and if you take the scripture seriously, it doesn't matter whether you're a liberal Democrat, a super conservative, uh, independent or what, they all agree on the same thing. If you take the Bible seriously, things are bad. The culture in which we live is in moral decline. Nobody mm -hmm. disagrees. We are in a severe moral decline that the nuclear family is falling apart. And this is going to cause us to respond as a church. We need to respond. Now, there are three basic uh, responses. No, I'd say four that I see happening that I've been reading and studying about. I, I really dug about into these the this summer. Family no, about No, about our political responses as a church, okay. right? Okay. People writing and saying, this is how the church should respond to, to the political environment today. Okay. Right. One is, uh, by, uh, an author by the name of Rod Dreyer, and he's written some other books, but he wrote a book called the Benedictine option. And his basic point is we need to withdraw from American society and create our own subculture similar to the German Mennonites in Kansas or the Amish right? Mm. We just withdraw. We do our own schools, our own economics, our own farms with the rest of the world. Yeah. And, and by living a different way of life is his point. And you, you know, there's a little bit of truth. In it. If we live a different way of life, people will see over generations that our way of living is superior to their way of living and they will be one to this new way of living. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's similar to what happened in the, the middle ages, uh, in, in, uh, monasteries and nunneries. The, the second option is we become all things to all people option. 
And this is based on Paul's statement in Corinthians about how he will become all things to all people so that he might win some to Christ. And this basically says that we are to be friends with the world, adopt all the cultural values or societal norms within the church. And there's a lot of churches today who are bracing, embracing and in, in, in uh, using their platform. Like I, I said, communism, socialism, uh, critical race theory, affirmation of the LGBTQ plus. That's di- it's one thing to say, Hey, you're included here. We're not going to judge you and heap stuff on you. You're included here. You're going to be treated normal. Like all of us, right. Are in the same boat as opposed to we're going to affirm this and say, God made you this way. And so you should embrace it and walk and live in it. And that's what the new, uh, Christianity is all about. So that's a big deal. I think happening today is one of the responses. It comes from this passage of Paul where he discusses, I become all things to all people. The upside to the responses, it makes this, your church look really cool and hip, accommodating, inviting to all. Um, uh, but, the downside of it is, you know, we'll t- I'll discuss in a, in a moment some of the downsides. I just want to get through all the options first. Okay. The third option is don't take sides option. Okay. We don't want to take sides in politics. When you take sides, you end up alienating the other side, right? And if we want to reach people for Christ, so the thing is, is in anything that's political, then what we're going to do is not take sides. I think this was really effective in the forties uh, and the fifties and even into the sixties. Okay. But the problem now, and I'll talk about that in a moment is that everything is political now, everything. So, so you end up basically saying nothing. <laughs> you walk just, around saying Jesus died for your sins. The end. The, the end. Okay. We'll talk a little bit more Then you know, Somebody, uh, a famous author is, uh, Andy Stanley. He's okay. very influential as his church, you know, has a bunch of campuses, five or six campuses. Their attendance is over 30, 40,000 people in the Atlanta region. And he writes a lot of books. He's considered one of the top evangelical leaders, right? He leads conferences. Okay. He speaks a lot. So a lot of people listen to him and his position. He, um, and I'm not trying to criticize him or call him out. I don't want to do that, but he preached on this and then wrote a book called not in it to win it. And he just released this book. So I think it's fair to critique his position. Okay. And he kind of is along this line. He's basically don't pick sides because you're alienating the other side. But he says, if you don't pick sides, you'll become the conscience of the nation. And I'm like, Okay, how do you become the conscience of the nation without ever picking a side? Right. Right. So I'm trying to f- dig more into his position, and I don't want to be too critical of it until I really try to understand it because I don't really understand the point Where he's getting he's at going yet. With it yet. Okay. Okay. Um, then the fourth option is the church uh, must be in charge option. If we were in charge and we dictated everything, then even though people who disagreed with us would be better off. And this has a little bit of a nationalistic flavor to it. Okay. And so those are the big options that I see presented to us right now. I'm going to propose the upstream focus. And that is we need to be a new Testament church option. And the more like the new Testament church we are, then the more we're going to be able to navigate this. Okay. So you've got some basic categories of the different positions on how people are choosing to respond as followers of Christ, we won't even try to get into what the secular world's Correct. dealing with on yeah. the political side, Yes, but you know, the, how the followers of Christ in this political environment are responding. Yes. Why is it important to categorize these different responses? Why do we, 
I mean, other than just organizationally, okay. why is this important? Well, this is one of the tools for critical thinking. You need to be able to evaluate propositions and then compare them to scripture. Okay. So the first thing you got to do is you read a proposition and you can't ask yourself, do I like it? This is what everybody does. You read something and you go, oh, I like that. Or, oh, it resonates with me. Sometimes I read stuff that resonates with me and I go, man, that's not good. Right? right. It's not good. What you want to do is the first thing you should ask yourself is I read this. Is it true? And how do I know it's true or not? Okay. So when you read anything, you say, this is true. How do I know it's true? Okay. That's really the most important thing. So this is critical thinking skills. The more you develop the skill of identification, the easier it is to think critically about things, especially all the things you're being bombarded with today in, uh, throughout all the media outlets. Right. So, I mean, that makes complete sense, but how do we compare these various options in our response to the culture with the way we live today? Like, I mean, you, you, you presented all these options. And so how do we think through them yeah. or what do we use for that? Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back to our original thing. We need to understand biblical context, historical context, cultural context, philosophical context. Okay. The Benedictine option. Okay. Uh, it really worked this is great. Basically a pros and cons list. Yeah. This pros me. and cons okay. list. Let's think through them. The Benedictine option. Let's withdraw, create our own subculture. Well, that really worked great during the middle ages in Western civilization, right? Right. Between the, about the fourth century, all the way up to about the 11th or 12th century, it worked pretty well in the Western civilized nations, even though the Roman empire collapsed, there was still this, the church was very prevalent and there was this rising system of leadership. It became known as the feudal system. Okay. okay. Which in the end wasn't good for people. Uh, but here's the bottom line is that this option was terrible in North Africa. I mean, it just takes a cursory reading of history to understand that then the, the Rashidun uh, Caliphate and the Umayyad Caliphate expanded in seventh century, uh, North Africa. You know what they did? Cause you go prior to this in the seven, in the sixth century, the most populous Christian portion of the Mediterranean was North Africa. Okay. The top scholarly school and library and all Christendom was in Alexandria, Egypt. Okay. Okay. So the, the, it spread through the North Africa quicker. And a lot of people believe this is because of what happened. The Ethiopian eunuch, uh, that, uh, Philip appeared to and led to the gospel and was baptized. So, so for 300 years, 400 years, it grew because when Rome was persecuting Christians, guess what happened is the persecutions tended to be most verisophus, the closer to Rome you were. Okay. North Africa, it was so far away, there was a lot more latitude. So th those populations became predominantly Christian. So the, the density of Christians in North Africa were off the chart today. You can't find a Christian in North Africa. Why is that? Well, because when the Rashidun and the Umayyad Caliphate came through, they killed them all. They massacred them all, all. massive genocide killed all Christians. That's what Islam did. I'm not trying to dog on Islam. I'm stating historical fact. Then if you look back at the 20th century, you know, the 1900s mm -hmm. in communist countries, the Benedictine option wouldn't work because in communist countries and socialist countries, they went through, they found out all these Christian communities and monasteries, they seized them, shipped them off to Siberia where they died. 
in Mao Zedong's cultural revolution, you know what he did is he went in and they, he eradicated all the missionaries and all of the missions and all of the Christian churches and everything. They eradicated them all. So the Benedictine option doesn't work in a non-Western civilized society. Okay. Okay. So I don't think that's really an option for the church today in Western culture. I would agree. <laughs> it doesn't, it does it good. Let's look at the all things to all people option. Okay. The original idea came from Paul in first Corinthians nine, where he wrote, look for though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may gain more to the Jews. I became as a Jew. Then he jumps down to say to the Gentile, I became a Gentile. And then verse 22 to the weak, I became weak that I might gain the weak. I become all things to all people so that I'm by may that I may by all means save some. So the notion is people have interpreted this to say, well, we should affirm every societal trend or impulse in order to win people to Christ. Okay. So we affirm it. So when someone comes to me and says, Hey, I just want you to know that I'm a polyamorous transgendered person. I'm supposed to say, God made you that way. I affirm that in you. And guess what? You're going to discover God in your journey of faith. Well, that's a complete misunderstanding of what what Paul was saying. saying. Yeah. Yes. Paul was saying from a cultural standpoint, I'll eat like a Jew or I'll eat like a Gentile. I don't care the music I listen to. I don't care so that the truth of the gospel. So he's not saying change the truth of the gospel to fit your culture. He's not saying that, but that's right. how that's interpreted. This never ends well. This never ends well. You can never find a church that adopted all the cultural norms as true and has survived more than one generation. It's never happened. Why? Because you hold to a form of godliness, but you deny its power. When you take the gospel out, you take all the power out of godliness. So let's go to the next option, the stay out of politics and just witness about Jesus option. And that <laughs> is let's never take a side on any political thing. Well, like I said before, the biggest problem with this is pragmatically speaking is that it was effective for a time, but then now everything is political. I mean, what you eat in your diet is political. The music you listen to is political. Everything's political. Yeah. How you, what car you drive is political. What clothes you wear is political. Everything is political, you know? And so that that's difficult because you end up not being able to say anything. It's based on the idea that the church shouldn't take sides in politics because it undermines the influence of the church. But let's look back historically and see what happened when the church absolutely refused to take a side in some really big issues. In the 1930s, the Lutheran church chose not to take a side. And guess what? The Nazis came to power. Then they took over the Lutheran church. Okay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor and he's famous today because he was one of the only pastors out there that spoke against the Nazis. None of the other Lutheran pastors did. They all embraced it. Right. You look at, uh, Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholicism during world war II and the Nazi expansion chose not to take sides. They said, we're not going to take sides. And guess what happened? 13 million gypsies, Romanians, Polish people, elderly, handicapped, mentally disabled, and predominantly Jews were exterminated in camps. We all, when they're so, in the Holocaust, we hear about the six and a half to 7 million Jews that were exterminated. Mm -hmm. well, but what most people don't realize is in those camps, over 13 million people were exterminated. So it was everybody. So this idea of passivity of the church is also not a good option. That may not be a good option. You see, um, the church should be in charge option. 
Well, guess what? Just go back and read history. There was a time when the church wanted to be in charge. It was called the Papal States. And they ruled themselves. This is where the Pope had his own army, you know? So, you know, when he wanted to go and defend his borders, he would say, oh, in the name of Jesus, go out and kill all those people for right. me. Well, that didn't work so well. And, and the Roman Catholics understood this. They were like, yeah, this isn't a good idea. So they this reformed anymore. this. <laughs> yeah, we're not doing this anymore. So historically and philosophically and biblically, I see a lot of these options is untenable. So we've gone through four of the options and it looks looking at history, basically all of them have been tried <laughs> and none of yeah. them have worked. worked or worked well in any form or fashion. So yes. what is your opinion? You had mentioned a fifth option that you thought was the best option. Well, I think the best thing is to be a church completely focused on Jesus, 100%. This is why it's an upstream organization, organism, community, mm. why you become an upstream person. You're driven by faith, not by material things or changes with the society. Uh, it's a very important concept to grasp and to be grounded in. You're driven by values, values right. that you have uh, thought deeply about, that you've really struggled and wrestled through. And these values have become clear that they are based on revelation from God and that they are pure and that uh, even when you don't live up to them, you don't reject them, you know? And this is really an, important to understand because it was the church that ended slavery through three separate times in Western civilization. Today, slavery is still practiced. There are open slave markets when you can go and buy mm. another human being in Islamic countries today. I'm not dogging on Islam. I'm telling you the facts that exists today. Yet it's Christianity that stopped it in the Roman empire. As we've said before, 50% of the population of Rome was enslaved, right? right. But Christianity brought it to an end, even though it's still practiced today in North Africa in Christianity, it was brought to a, uh, in Roman empire, excuse me, by the influence of Christianity is brought to an end in the feudal system. It was brought to an end. It came back in through the, uh, aristocracy, the rulership tried to bring it back in. You know, when I told you earlier, the Roman Catholic church got involved in, in power politics and had popple States mm -hmm. Well, they adopted a lot of principles that supported the bloodlines of Kings and Queens. And so what happened is every Everybody belonged to the king, all right? Okay. All the land and all the peasants. Well, the Magna Carta was written in 1215 after 150 years of Christianity, right? Particularly coming out of these monasteries saying human beings have rights in the eyes of God. So that's when we start seeing a breakdown of the feudal economics enslavement of human beings. And then once again, it crept back in. And Christianity stopped it in England in 1883 with the Slave Abolition Act. And then uh, in 1865 with the Emancipation Proclamation by President Lincoln in the Americas. So it's really important to understand is that these abolition movements were started by the church. The church didn't sit on the sideline and say, you guys work out the slavery thing. Right. They didn't do that. Second, it was the church that created the environment that birthed the first experiment in self-governance. See, America and self-governance did not exist prior to this experiment. That's why America and its constitution is called the great experiment. Now, self-governance has taken over the whole globe in many, many different ways. It's not in Islamic countries and other dictatorships, but a lot of them, it spread quite rapidly.
Right. Finally, it's important to understand is that it was in the church that started the women's suffrage movement that resulted in the 19th Amendment, right? Giving women the right to vote. The church um, started that movement, right? All of these people in the church, women in particular, started women's societies. They grew, they spread out. The church was fully supportive of that. The male leadership of the church was fully supportive of that because it was originally designed as a temperance movement. And that is, is that these women were being victimized by men who were deadbeats, who weren't being men. And so the male leadership of the church supported this and did everything they could to support it. And it's important to note that in Congress, when they passed the uh, 19th Amendment, they voted on it, uh, women's suffrage, the right to vote. Mm-hmm. It was all men that voted for that. Right. And so it's important to understand. And almost all of those men were Christian men. So it's really important to understand that, that the church didn't sit on the sidelines for this. It got involved. And so it's important that the church takes stands that can be seen at times as political. Okay. It's important though. Um, on the other hand, if the church tries to play the political game, it loses its focus on Jesus and its upstream influence. If it tries to exert power for the sake of political gain, I think it always loses. So I've seen this on the progressive side. There's a lot of progressive churches that try to mobilize themselves and get a lot of gain. You see this um, amongst uh, a lot of black churches on the East Coast. But also I've seen this on the conservative side as well, where they try to form these groups to get political power. And so I think it's really important to understand and work through all this in a way. And that's what we hope to do is find an answer to this question. How are we supposed to respond as a New Testament church focused only on Jesus when the politics have become so divisive, we just don't know what to do? Well, we went a little long today, but we are covering a topic that has so much importance in our current environment, something that is so absolutely imperative that as we head into this new election season in November, that we have a very serious understanding of what the role of the church and Jesus are in politics and what is not. So um, I'm really excited for this series. It's one that I know you've been really revved up about. We've been talking about it for a couple months, knowing that it's coming. And I'm excited to see what we learn and how we're going to go about this whole thing and see what Jesus said and how he said it about (laughs) politics. So thank you guys so much for joining us. Make sure you have a plan for Roundup Sunday. If you are here in the Boise area, make sure you are getting your Western wear put together so that you can join us on Sunday for 500 pounds of tri-tip, dunk tanks, pony Mm. rides, face painting, rock climbing walls, first responders, and the whole get up. The kitchen sink. It's going to be everything, but make sure you're here. If you're not able to join us, we are going to be doing some live broadcasts from Roundup so you can kind of see what we're doing here so that you can feel involved um, if you're unable to attend in person. Um, for whatever reason. So we still want you to be involved and you can only catch that on foothills.org or on our YouTube Mm -hmm. channel, Foothills Boise. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We'll see you on Thursday for more of the Salty Pastor Podcast. Blessings on you.